In the journey of the heart, hope plays the crucial role. In fact, Paul, in his epistle to the Colossians, says that while faith, hope, and love, of course, are the greatest, he says that faith and love actually spring from or are born out of or are supported from hope. That like hope is the undergirding of the three great virtues, the three great forces of the Christian life. And so here is our last session in a 10-part series that we've been doing on the sacred romance, and the topic is Paradise Regained. There is something in the desire that we set out with that gets lost as we travel through this life, particularly as we lose sight of the story and what the real battle is, we really do begin to lose heart. But there's joy still in the coming home. I just want to reflect a little bit on homecoming. I uh, travel a lot, more than I'd like, speaking at different things around the country, and I just love to come home. It's my favorite part of any trip, unless my family's with me and we're on an adventure, and then I love adventuring. But when I'm out there, sort of battling for hearts, the thought of coming home just brings so much consolation at the end of the journey. And when Brent does that uh, exercise where we just kind of let whatever's in our hearts come up, so oftentimes, for me, the first thing that comes up is, I just want to go home. And I don't mean in this case to Stacy and the boys, although I'm looking forward to that. I mean home, home. There's something in all of us that longs for the happy ending, right? In fact, when Stacy gets really engaged in a book, she gets into it and she's really enjoying it, she will turn to the end and read the ending before she goes any farther. And the reason is, uh, I just thought it was the weirdest thing for years, but finally I asked her, why do you do this? You know, and she said, uh, I'm not about to get invested in these people's lives until I know how this thing turns out. <laughs> you know, and she says, a, a great story, you know, it really is determined by the ending. I mean, the most tragic, painful stories can be redeemed by a happy ending, and I can make it through. I mean, you know, a story like Jane Eyre or something like that. But... You know, the most wonderful story can be absolutely ruined by a tragic ending. And I thought, you know, that is a really biblical way of reading books. Because God apparently thinks that it is so important that we know the ending of the story, he's told it to us. He hasn't left us wondering, how is this all going to turn out anyway? I mean, when I am lost in the struggle, I forget what happens, and I begin to doubt how the whole thing turns out. Just that one idea that this is as good as it gets is probably the single greatest cause for the loss of heart in people's lives. Just the idea, it's why Thoreau said most people live lives of quiet desperation, because we think this is as good as it gets. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, heaven and all that, but really, in the day in and day out, you're kind of thinking, wow, This is as good as it gets. I mean, this is all my heart's ever really going to have. And it's crushing. Do you know what St. Paul said? He said, if this is as good as it gets, my advice to you is to go to Nordstrom's and max out your cards. (laughs) 
he says, go home, bake a cake, eat the whole thing. He says, don't even go home. Stop at a bar on the way and just get hammered. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Right? Gabriel Marcel says that hope is to the soul like breathing is to the body. If we don't live with hope, we don't live well at all. In fact, a fascinating thing, when Paul's reflecting on the trinity of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love, love is the most important, and I hope you're beginning to see in richer detail why. Because of Act One, because of the way the trinity relates to each other, because we are the beloved, because that's what the battle is about. But did you know that they all turn on hope? In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that your faith and your love spring from the hope that you have for Act 4. People who have lost hope don't love very well. And people who have lost hope, who have lost a sense of anticipation of something really good coming, faith just becomes doctrine. It just becomes what you ought to believe, but it's not captivating to us. We cannot live well without hope. A couple of years ago, I was um, speaking at a men's thing in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and the reason I agreed to go see, they knew how to get me, is that they told me that I could go fly fishing, that I could have Saturday afternoon and evening off. And so I agreed to go. And, I mean, ministry is ministry, right? But fly fishing is a whole other thing. And this was a real intense time in my life. I'm in grad school. I, I you know, full-time work and travel and, and then just the deeper things of family and friends. And I was looking forward to this little window. This was my little chance to sneak back in the garden, right? I'm going to have two days in Jackson, Wyoming. This is going to be wonderful. The weather was lousy. The fishing was worse. And I am standing in the Snake River right there, the Tetons. I mean, it's, it's a breathtaking place, but I am hacked off. And um, you cannot fly fish without grace. I mean, it just... It requires a whole presence of soul, and I'm out there kind of doing this, and you know, <laughs> sort of thing. And the guys I'm with, I mean, these guys are clearly, you know, dealing with major sin issues in their lives. And um, <laughs> almost as an afterthought, my host kind of leans over and he says, Oh, by the way, um, we're going to end early tomorrow. And um, I've arranged for a float trip down the south fork of the Snake. It's a wild section of river. Uh, weather is predicted to clear. Fishing is guaranteed to be incredible. In a moment. I suddenly saw the golden colors of the aspens. The musical rushing of the waters was reaching my ears. The guys I'm with, I mean, really, just a great bunch of guys. <laughs> This is a true story. In a moment, what did the whole thing turn on? Hope. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. The scripture says, but hope restored is a spring of life or a tree of life. We cannot live without hope. Now, if you don't fly fish, the story may seem a little silly, but, but the principle is this. If for all intents and purposes, we live with the thought that, you know, this is pretty much as good as it gets. We will be demanding men and women. We will insist that our friendships and our marriages and our work and our life come through for us in ways that they never can. 
and then we will be desperate and eventually despairing people. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. If we do not have a sense that something better is coming, we just will not make it in the journey of the heart. The best life, I said last night, is unspeakably sad. Even if you've managed to escape some of the major arrows, and very few people have, the the good that we do have never lasts, right? I mean, every vacation comes to an end. Dinner with friends, they eventually go home, and you're just left with the dirty dishes, right? You move to a new town. You have to find a new church, a new community. Every good thing in this world does come to an end. And as C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only reasonable explanation is that I was made for another world. The problem is, we don't have much of an anticipation for that other world. We really don't live with a sense of act four. I worked at a church in Southern California for a number of years, and there was a guy there that was the youth pastor who told me this story that as a boy, he didn't want to go to heaven. And he would tell the Sunday school teachers that. Mrs. Jones, I don't want to go to heaven. Finally, one of them has the courage to ask him why. And he says, I don't like peas. Excuse me? Yeah, you know, sleep in heavenly peas. I don't like peas. (laughs) This is a true story. This poor kid had heard the refrain to Silent Night, sleep in heavenly peace. Thought that they were singing about the vegetables and that was heaven. And like any red-blooded American boy decided he didn't want anything to do with it. Right? Our pictures of heaven are not much better. As Peter Kress says, they're not moving pictures. In fact, Kreft goes on to say that the crisis that afflicts the church today is a crisis of imagination. He says, it doesn't matter if it's a dull lie or a dull truth. Dullness, not doubt, is the greatest enemy of faith. We need to recover with some sense of color and dimension and texture what is coming in Act 4 that our story is going to take a delicious turn very shortly. And so I want to explore that with just three themes, three longings of our hearts in light of some of the promises that God has made to us. The first is the longing for intimacy. That's the core longing of every human being, whether they act like it or not whether they pretend like they want relationship or not, you cannot escape the fact that you were made for glory. You long for it. You want to be in the gaze of others. You want to be a priority to someone. And all of us live through this journey with continual experiences of being left out. I hated kickball in the fourth grade. Recess, right? Because you go out for recess, and every day your rank in fourth grade society was reaffirmed. And the two captains are always the same, right? You never get to be the captain. Everybody always knows who the two captains are. And then they start picking teams, right? The kids all line up, and the captains pick teams. And there, you find out where your standing is. You know? Now, I never had it as bad as some kids. You know, the poor kid who just had a little extra weight and Oh, don't make us take Smitty here. You can have two of our guys. I mean, really (laughs) cruel things, right? I mean, children are brutal. But I never, never did anyone say, wait, stop. 
Today, we get Eldridge. You can't have him. You know? You've all had experiences like this, right? Or if you're picked, it's always for the wrong reason, you know? Because you're going to buy the kid lunch or, you know, because you share your candy bar with him or something like that. It's never for your heart. Being left out. Uh, cafeteria in junior high school. Oh, what a dreadful experience. Because you get your tray, those of you who went to larger schools, and you, you go out and you have to find a place to sit, right? And uh, once again, you, you know, you've got to fall within the caste system. And there's a cool kids table. And one day I decided to brave the cool kids table, and there's one seat left. And before I even got there, one of them looked up and sneered, not here, Eldridge. We're saving this for someone, meaning you're no one, right? I mean, those are kind of silly stories in some ways, but through our lives, we just have that sense that we do not fit in, and the longing for intimacy within us begins to get buried deep. Maybe you've had the other experience. Maybe you've been on you know, the other side of things where you're picked for the team, or you walk into a crowded dinner party, right, and you don't know a lot of people, and it's kind of that nervous moment, and somebody waves you over on the other side, you know, right here, and they've got a place that they have saved for you. Ah. Uh, it's such a great feeling. That's John 14. I go to save a place for you at the table, for you and for no one else. When you walk into the wedding feast of the Lamb, they're not going to have to rustle up a place setting, right? Oh, no, Bob's here. Hey, somebody, get a chair from the kitchen. You know, (laughs) there is a place being held for you today, tonight being held for you there at the table by the lover of your soul. And think of how God gets the whole thing kicked off, right? A wedding feast. I mean, he starts off Act 4 with a party. Okay, now you have to get images of Baptist weddings entirely out of your mind. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. People standing around in the gym with cups of punch, you know, talking about what a lovely couple they are. I mean, I'm sure some of them are fine, but... (laughs) You've got to go to a Jewish wedding, right? I mean, they go on for days, right? And they roll up the rugs and they move back the furniture and they break out food and there is feasting and there is dancing and there is drinking, right? Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink again with you in the kingdom of heaven. He's going to pop the cork, right? And you can't pull the new wine thing on me either because in Isaiah he says a feast of the finest meats and aged wines I am preparing for you, so don't go there. (laughs) We get to heaven, it is going to be a party, right? Chateau Lafitte, 1916, there we go. It's going to be wonderful, right? I can't wait. And it's not just any kind of party, right? It is a wedding feast. Now, what goes on at wedding feasts? Those of you who have been married or those of you who have some sort of imagination, right? God chooses what was meant to be the most intimate moment of human experience, the wedding night, the coming together, the consummation of the engagement, right? To describe what is going to take place between the lover of our souls and us. Intimacy beyond your wildest imagination. I mean, we are talking the real thing. This engagement that we're in, it's headed to a consummation. And it's not just intimacy with God, but it's with each other, too. I mean, we will finally be rid of the coats and hats, 
Won't it be wonderful? Adam and Eve, before the fall, were naked, but there was no shame, right? And in heaven, we will finally see each other as we truly are, and we won't be horrified. We will be delighted, right? Jeff, I knew it. I knew you had a great heart, right? Mary, you're here, and look at how beautiful you are. You're radiant. You're glorious. You wear the morning star so well, right? Revelations 2, to he who overcomes, I will give him the morning star. We will put on glory, right? And to behold one another and to know one another. George MacDonald, in a just incredibly tender letter to his daughter right before she died, is thinking about heaven. And he says, I think at that time when we are finally as loving as God is, that we will be able to pass through each other's souls and know each other fully, even as God knows us. Won't that be wonderful? I mean, just think of the, just the pain of being misunderstood, right? Of never quite getting it right and just how hard it is to connect and how rare it is when somebody finally gets it. We will know each other. Heaven, as Jonathan Edwards says, is a world of love where God is the fountain. And when we get there, uh, Revelations 2, he promises us a white stone with a new name on it. And what's that all about, right? It's known only between the lover of your soul and you. Now, what do lovers give each other? Pet names, right? I mean, I have a name that I call Stacy that nobody else gets to call her. Nobody else knows, right? And you all probably do this with your kids. If you have children, the sort of little family names, right? Tiger or Scooter or whatever, you, you know, little things that you kind of call each other in affection. And the white stone is the way of God welcoming you into the intimacy and saying, see now? As George MacDonald says, the name is your soul's picture in a word. It's the person that he had in mind all along when he set out to make you and after you lost heart and he came to rescue you and he is setting you free now and restoring you. It is the person he has kept in mind. And to give the name is to seal the success and say, yes, yes, now you are the name. Intimacy. The other longing is the longing for adventure. And in, right now, these longings kind of find their emphasis in the genders. Intimacy a little bit stronger for women than men, and adventure a little bit stronger in men than women, right? I mean, just open the garage. <laughs> What's in there, you know? All his stuff, right, that he uses to pursue adventure, the golf club and the basketballs and the, you know, everything. Adventure, what will we do in heaven? This is where we really lose it. I mean, this is just terrible. What is the typical evangelical response to what will we do in heaven? Yes, we will worship God. And something in your heart says, for how long? <laughs> right? I mean, I'm there, I'm there, 100,000 years, couple hundred thousand years, I mean, forever, ever? Right? I mean, how many choruses can we possibly go through? We just worship God, that's it? Heaven is an unending church service? Whoa, that's beginning to get like my picture of the other place. I mean, church is fine, but I mean, it is hardly heaven, right? Yeah, we will worship God in heaven. We have no idea what that means. You know the old wedding vows used to say, with my body, I thee worship? You see, worship is not singing choruses. 
Worship is communion. It is giving over of yourself to another, right? A woman was describing her fear to me when she was about 13, and her parents were doing the talk, right? And the whole idea of what was going to happen between her and a man one day just sounded so appalling to her. You know, it's frightening, scary even. I think that's maybe a little bit about how we feel in the sense of, whoa, I mean, this is going to be real, real knowing. We will worship God in heaven, meaning all of life will finally be worship. In the parable of the minas, for example, in the parable of the talents, Jesus is picturing a, a preparation of us. Right? There's something he's developing in us and that's going to be released when he returns. Right? He tells the story, a king went off to receive a country and he gave these gifts and he came back and he said, how'd you do? Right? And those who risked, those who lived from the heart, those who didn't stay in a safe, small place, right? like the guy who buried it, but those who lived courageously are invited to live even more courageously. Right? They're invited even into even more. Ten cities and all of that. I don't know what that's about, but the idea is this. How many of you feel like your gifts are really given wings in this life? I mean, most of you aren't even working in the job that you studied for in college, right? I mean, life is not like that. It just takes the oddest directions for most of us. But a day is coming when you will be something, when your gifts will be released into the kingdom of heaven. He who overcomes, Revelation 3, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And you think, wow, now that is really great. <laughs> holy, holy, holy. Hey, is this something or what? Huh? Couldn't you wait to be here? I mean, it hardly takes your breath away, right? When John of Patmos was writing Revelations, if you were really somebody in the Mediterranean kingdom, if you were an architect and you had designed aqueducts for the city, or you were an artisan and you had painted the mural for the city, or you were a, a great you know, hero in battle, they would literally put your name on a pillar in the pagan temples. A pillar of the community, right? You see, Jesus is saying, no, a day is coming when you are going to be critical for all the adventure of Act 4. You will be released in glory, and it will be something to behold. Real adventure, right? It's the story back on track. Jesus didn't redeem us to take us out of the game, right? I mean, eternal rest. It sounds like the slogan of a middle-class cemetery, right? <laughs> the place of eternal rest. Yeah, maybe a long nap after this feast. You know, I'm, I'm going to sack out for a couple hundred years myself, but I mean... <laughs> After that, my batteries are recharged and we are ready to go, right? The new adventure, the real thing. And finally, just the third deep longing of the human heart. One that might strike you kind of as a surprise, the longing for beauty. Brent was describing the experience of coming up over the Kaibab Plateau and seeing the Grand Canyon and being overcome by tears. Another friend of mine had a similar experience a few years ago when he was touring Westminster Cathedral, and he kind of got broken off from the party, and um, he came in alone into the cathedral by the side door. The cathedrals are designed with an architectural progression. You go through the chancel and the narthex and all of that, but he walks right into the glory of Westminster. There it is in stone and glass and spire, and there was a choir in there that was practicing, and at that moment, they broke out in song, and he broke down weeping for reasons that he can't even today put into words. But there is something in our hearts that longs 
for beauty. Right? I mean, this has happened to me in so many places on the Nepali coast in Kauai or flying over the glaciers in Alaska. Brent and I were fly fishing together down on the San Juan in New Mexico, and it had not been a great day. The fish were completely uncooperative. And, I mean, they're really, they're Amazons down there. They're, you know, they're just seductresses. They just tease you, you know, <laughs> but they never consummate the affair. And um, <laughs> it had not been a good day, and we're kind of tromping around in the water, and all this, you know, stuff's coming out. And, and um, we sort of split up in the evening, and I was walking back up the river in the evening, and, and the reeds along the river that had been quiet all day began to be filled with the sounds of birds in the evening. And the moon, a full moon, an Ansel Adams moon, comes up over the, the New Mexico plateau right there. And here's this grand dame of the evening. You know, she's just beautiful. And the water's this pastel color. And suddenly a flock of uh, pintails, ducks, wild ducks, fly across the face of the moon. And I am just gone. I am gone. I mean, the fishing is no longer the point. I am transported, and suddenly I realized sin isn't the point. Pain isn't the point. Suffering isn't the point. God's beauty really is bigger than all of that. And the people who have had a little glimpse of it, like John Revelation, fall over themselves to try and say how beautiful it is, right? It's like an emerald sea. No, it's like a rainbow, but it's kind of like a jardis precious stone. Well, it's, I mean, they just can't even get it, right? They're just trying to say, it's gorgeous. It's breathtaking, right? I think it's why the scriptures say we shall be feasted. Because as Lewis said, C.S. Lewis said, there's something about beauty. We don't want to see it only. We want something that can hardly be put into words to receive it into ourselves, to pass into it, to become one with it. And so we shall. The beauty that's ahead. Somewhere into the journey, as you live for hearts from the heart, two new questions begin to kind of come up from deep within your soul. And the questions are, will I make it? And will it be good when I get there? A day is coming sooner than most of us think when we will round a bend in the road and we will be home. When all of the arrows will be pulled out and our wounds dressed with leaves from the tree of life. When all that we have feared, the evil one and our other lovers will all be swept away. And then, Real life begins. And each day when we wake up, we can say, my journey today will take me closer toward home. Because you see, we've rounded the bend. And all the journey now is toward home, not farther from it. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, it is hard for us to begin to put to words the true desires and fears and aches of our hearts. And so we just trust the Spirit to groan for us.
We long for home. And we are so looking forward to the day that Act 3 is over. But while we are here, while we yet journey and battle, we pray that you would strengthen us. Jesus, give us eyes to see where the battle lies for our own hearts and for the hearts of those we love. Come, speak deeply. Free us from our captivity. Heal our sight. Release us from any prisons that remain in our lives and help us to fight well for others. Help us to experience disappointment as a chance for our longings to grow and deepen toward you and toward Act 4 and help the tastes that you do give us along the way of real friendship and love and intimacy, of real adventure and, and real victory over things. Help them to encourage us toward the day when it will all be well and all manner of things will be well. In your precious name. And finally, I just ask that all the good that you have done and all the good even that you have begun in hearts here today would be sealed under your blood. That you would carry each of us safely from this place and shepherd our hearts. That the evil one would be thrown down indeed and unable to steal one thing that you have done in any person's heart here. For we throw ourselves into you, Jesus, into your arms and under your cross and blood. Strengthen us. In your name we pray. Amen. I hope this has been meaningful to you. If you've only recently dropped in on the podcast, you realize that you've caught the tail end of a series that we did on the sacred romance and it is actually the lectures that birthed the book. You might want to go back and now pick up the book and read it for the first time or reread it if it's been a long time, as it has been a very long time for me. We hope you've enjoyed the series here on the Ransomed Heart Podcast. Hope this has been a rich part of your summer and that God's been using it to speak into your life. Thanks for joining us.